Joshua chapter number 15, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 13. The Bible says, And unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord, to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And Caleb drove thence the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. And he went up thence to the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir before was Kerjath Sefer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kerjath Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, to be to wife. And it came to pass, as she came unto him, that she moved him to ask of her father a field. She lighted off her ass, and Caleb said unto her, What wouldest thou? Who answered, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for this precious time to be in your house. I've been encouraged already just by the testimonies that have been given, the songs, Lord, the congregational singing, the good spirit that we feel here tonight. May we not do anything to grieve or to quench the Holy Ghost. Father, may He have full administration of this service tonight. Help me to not say anything I ought not to say. Help me, Father, to say everything You'd have me to say. And may You be glorified in all that's done. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, being raised in the home of a giant slayer. Caleb was one of the great men of the Old Testament. I, I think often, I was thinking about it today in between the services, as I was thinking about the young Caleb that we preached about uh, this morning. Now we say young, he no doubt was in his, I believe his 40s, whenever he went and spied out the land of Canaan. Uh, and that, that is young, but it's especially young when you consider that now in this passage he's 85. And we talked about the young Caleb this morning, who as a young man uh, saw a portion of the land that God had promised him and committed himself under the taking and possessing of that land. We saw a young man this morning that was bold and daring in his faith. But as we come to Joshua chapter 15, we see Caleb the old man. And now as an old man, 85 years old, they have entered into the land and it's time for God to make good on the promise that he had made 45 years earlier. And so Caleb goes to Joshua as they were dividing out the land, the various tribes, and he says to Joshua, I want the land that God has promised me. And God fulfills that promise, gives it to Caleb, and uh, Caleb then begins to divide it amongst his children. And he uh, wants to give some land to his daughter, Aksa. And, but the problem is, Aksa is not married. He wants her to be married first. And so, as he is conquering these various cities, he comes to a city named Debir. And before it was named Kerjath Sefer. We'll say a word about what those names mean here in just a few moments. But he decided that he had a good rule uh, for how he was going to pick the, uh, the prospective mate for his daughter. Whoever could take that city must be worthy of his little girl. And uh, he said, I, I tell you what, whoever takes this city, you've proved to me some things, and I will give you my daughter to marry. Well, his nephew Othniel stands up and says, I believe I'll take that deal. And he goes and he casts down the city of Debir, and he brings it into subjection, and he, uh, he, he brings the city under his thumb, and he goes back to his uncle, and he says, here I've defeated this city. And Caleb says, all right, well, here's my daughter to marry. 
Well, just as soon as she saw him, she said, I've got me an idea. And she said to Othniel, you need to ask my daddy for a portion of land. Othniel says, well, I'd be happy to do that. But as they rode up, Axa gets off of the donkey and Caleb evidently could see. Some of y'all daddies, apparently you can see it in your daughter's eye when she's about to ask you for something. Is that true? Any of y'all's raised daughters? You can see it in their eye. Well, evidently that's what happened because the moment that she got off that donkey, Caleb said, what are you coming looking for? And uh, she said, I desire a blessing. And he said, what kind of blessing? And here's a good rule of thumb when it comes to your kids and they ask for a blessing, they mean money. Amen? <laughs> she says, you've given me a portion of land, but I want some springs to go with it. Land can't be tilled and worked without springs, so I want the upper and the lower springs. And so he honors his daughter's request, and he gives her these springs. Now, here's the question I have. Why is this in your Bible and mine? What is it that God is trying to teach us from this passage? As I read this passage, and one other one in the prior chapter that we'll read here in a moment, it strikes me that Caleb raised a daughter exactly like him. The boldness that she displayed, the daring that she displayed, maybe, dare we say, the presumptuous nature that she displayed, all of these things remind you of her daddy. And it got me to thinking about how we invest into the lives of our kids. You know, I'm afraid that we've come to a day now where parent is only a noun and no longer a verb. Think about that a minute. Where parent is only a noun and no longer a verb. Where a parent is what you are, but parenting is not very often what we do. And I feel like if we're going to have the same influence in our children's lives and grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whoever God's put in the scope and sphere of your influence then we're going to have to start looking at that parent or that leading, however one call it. We're going to have to start looking at that as a verb and becoming active in the way that we raise our children. I look at Caleb, and I imagine what it must have been like growing up in his home. And evidently, there were some things that he injected deliberately into the life of his children that carried with them, that molded and shaped who they were and who they became. I want to give you three ways that I believe Caleb put godly influence into the life of his daughter. Three ways in which he influenced her to mold and shape her for what she needed to be to serve and live for the Lord. Look back in chapter number 14 with me. Chapter number 14. Now this is not very long before what occurs in chapter 15. But we have a more detailed explanation and description of a conversation that takes place between Joshua and Caleb. Now remember, Moses is dead. Joshua is the one that God has uh, permitted and, and ordained to lead them into the land. And so Joshua has led them into the land. Uh, earlier in the book of Joshua, you'll read about the uh, destruction of Jericho. and uh, You'll read about the city of Ai. And uh, you'll read about how God cast down these various peoples. So they've gotten a lot of work done so far. And now they've, they've gotten into the heart of the land, into the interior of the land, and they're dividing up these portions, and they are allowing each of the various tribes to conquer. They're no longer necessarily moving as one uh, united, cohesive force, but they've divided up into tribes, and it's each tribe's responsibility to clean out their land. Can I just say this? This wasn't in my message, but it is each tribe's responsibility to clean out their land. So what do you mean? Well, each tribe was a family. 
And it's each family's responsibility to clean out their home, their land, and to make sure it's what it ought to be to be honoring unto the Lord. For far too long, we've looked around at all the other families and said, well, if they're doing it, then it must be okay, or I'll just try to do what they do. No, 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 friend, you're going to be judged, and I'm going to be judged for how we run our home, how we shape our home, what we permit in our home. Nobody's going to do it for you. If you want to have a godly home, you're going to have to make it a godly home. And that's true, by the way, whether you've got kids at home or not. If you want your home to be a godly home, you're going to have to make it a godly home. It is your land, it's your territory, it's your responsibility to drive out the inhabitants. And so they give to Caleb. Uh, he, of course, is of the tribe of Judah. So they give to Caleb and to the other people in the tribe of Judah the, the portion, the region, the inheritance of Judah. The Bible says in verse number 6, Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people to melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children's forever." Because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. Joshua blessed him, and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, Hebron, for an inheritance. Now let me pause there and say this. Imagine, for we can assume, 40 years in the wilderness... And everybody that was 20 years old and under died in the wilderness, but they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. We do not know exactly how old Axa was, but you can imagine that for decades as they wandered through the wilderness, she had grown up in Caleb's home. She had observed and seen his example. Let me say first of all to you that the first way that we inject influence into anyone's life is by our example. If your example does not match your exhortation, they will ignore your exhortation and they will follow your example. In other words, they care a lot more about what your life says than about what your lips say. I heard this a few times growing up. I don't think I've ever uttered it to my children, but I, I heard this a few times growing up, not very often, because usually we didn't get argued with, we just got whipped. Somebody say amen to that. But you ever heard somebody say, do as I say, not as I do? Us parents, we say that when we don't want to have to explain to you why it's okay for us to do it, but not for you. That's what that is. But uh, the reality is we can say that till we're blue in the face. And maybe in the immediate, that'll fly. But sooner or later, they're going to quit doing as you say and start doing as you do. If our example is not right, man, we've seen this. We've seen this for generation after generation after generation. There's been a lot of parents that have raised their kids in a pattern of unfaithfulness 
and then at a later age in life determined they wanted to live for the Lord and then wanted to go backwards in time, spin the thing, spin the earth backwards, wind back the clock and inject faithfulness into the life of their kids. We, listen, if we teach our kids that church is an optional venture, we shouldn't be surprised when one day they treat it as though it's unnecessary. If we treat if we treat the house of God as though it's something, well, we just you know we go when we can, but you know if there's any old excuse to lay out, we're going to lay out. We shouldn't be surprised then when one day they start finding excuses to lay out. Same thing is true about reading the Word of God. If we treat the Bible like it's a book of suggestions, we should not be surprised when one day our children treat it as though it's a book of fairy tales. When we treat prayer as though it's a mere formality, we shouldn't be surprised one day uh, when when uh, people uh, uh, when our children grow up to believe that prayer is just mere ceremony and it's not real and it's not powerful and it's not vibrant. What you do in moderation, others will do in excess. They will follow your life, not your lips. We better get it nailed down that our example has to be right. Now let me say this. There's a lot of times your example can be right. They've still got a mind of their own. They're still going to live the life they're going to live. They're going to make the choices they're going to make. But you can guarantee that if your example is not right, they'll follow your worst example. Caleb left a good example. I see it in three things. One, I I see his example in the faith that he displayed. He comes to Joshua and he says, For 40 years I've been walking in the wilderness and I've been waiting on this day. God made me a promise 40 years ago. I've not left it. I've not let go of it. It still is the heartbeat of my life. And it still is the weather vane of my destiny. I am determined to take this mountain. Now, if he comes and approaches Joshua and says this, imagine the kind of conversations that took place for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. Don't you imagine that at some point, a little girl named Axel looked up at her daddy Caleb and said, Daddy, where are we going? Don't you imagine she probably looked up at him and said, Daddy... Why do we live in tents instead of in houses like everyone else? Don't you know she probably looked up at him and said, Daddy, what is this land of of Canaan that I hear about? And for 40 years, no doubt, he looked at his little girl and said, Honey, I know it seems like it's taken a long time, but God made me a promise X number of years ago, and we're marching towards that land. And one of these days, God's going to bring us to that place. One of these days, you're going to see that mountain that your daddy's told you about for all these years. One of these days, you're going to set foot in that land. Don't lose faith, honey, because one of these days, God is going to bring to reality what He promised me many years ago. I think that one of the things that's often missing as part of our the culture of a godly home is the constant conversation around spiritual truths. If you talk about church and the things of God as though it's a once or twice a week activity, don't be surprised when your children imagine that there's nothing real and substantive to it. It ought to be that our conversations day in and day out are constantly revolving around the truths of the Word of God. And I would imagine that all th- if Caleb held on to this promise for 45 years, you better believe it was a topic of conversation around the table at home. You better believe that when those questions were asked, he had a biblical godly answer for it. We need, we don't need to just inject godly language into our home. Our home needs to be permeated with it. And a lot of this is going to take a readjusting of our perspective on how we live life and how we view life. In other words, we're going to have to start becoming a lot more spiritual in the way we talk about things, perceive things, view things, and interact with things in this world. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about our perspective. And I think so often we get so so ground into the routine of the world 
that we, we struggle sometimes to really view the world through a spiritual lens. But understand that your children are going to view the world through the lens that you view it through. So your conversation at home ought to be inundated all the time. Not just at home, but in public, in, in public life, at the workplace. But your conversation ought to be inundated at all times with the things of God. Your conversations ought to be things like, well, we're praying and seeking the Lord's will about this matter or about that matter. Your conversations ought to, when you're praying about a matter, it ought to be, well, whatever the Lord wants in this situation, that's what we desire. It ought to be that every day by your godly example, the way they're going to learn how to walk by faith is by seeing you walk by faith. That's how they're going to learn. And, and the same thing's true of your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews. They're going to learn by example if you'll lead by example. And I believe Caleb led by example in the faith that he displayed. Let me say number two, I believe that he led by example not only in the faith that he displayed, but also I believe he led in the the focus that he determined. He gets there and he says, my goal has not changed in 45 years. God made a promise to me 45 years ago that I was going to take this mountain. And I'm still just as passionately consumed with that project as I ever was. One of the great things we can teach our kids in this day of... I, I'm going to use this terminology. Don't, I hope it's not offensive. I don't think it will be. But we live in a day of a schizophrenic reality. Wherever there's constant schism in the world. And, and it's like everything's just vibrating all the time. Just with tension, with noise, with distraction, all the time. And one of the things that I think we need to do as godly parents, as parents that are that are raising children for the Lord, is we need to exhibit to our children a laser-straight focus on spiritual things. What you make the priority of your life is very likely what they will make the priority of their life. In fact, you know what we find? I'm getting ahead of myself in this message. But Axa wound up marrying a young man that had that same ambition to take that hill as her daddy did. There's a lot to be said there. What we exhibit to our children, what we teach them in the areas of focus and determination in the spiritual realm, of not getting distracted with the things of the world, but of keeping our eyes on our spiritual development, is going to inform and dictate the kind of determination that our children exhibit. We teach our children determination in everything, it seems. We teach them you can't quit at sports. We teach them you got to get good grades. Uh, we teach them that, you, you, you know, you've got to have... Uh, we need to teach them they need good hygiene. Somebody say amen to that. When they get a job, we teach them you can't quit. you got to stay in. you got to stick in. But why is it when it comes to spiritual things, we won't teach them that same focused determination? Could it be that we don't want to be held to the standard that we want them to live to? We need to be teaching them by our example a focused determination. We need to keep our eyes on serving the Lord and not allow ourselves to become distracted in in the menial things of life. After 45 years, Caleb said, I'm still just as determined to get that mountain as I was 45 years ago. Why? Because God promised it to me and because that's where God wants me. Don't you think there were probably easier mountains to take? Why did he want that mountain? Because that mountain was in the land of Israel, in the tribe of Judah. That mountain was in the place that God wanted him. He wanted to be where God wanted him. And he was unwilling to swerve or sway from that position. We need the same kind of resolve and commitment. We want our children, our grandchildren, the people watching us to pursue after the will of God with passion and with vigor. 
then we need to, exa- to give the example to them in that area. And we need to make the will of God and the plan of God the chief priority and, and the chief preeminent thing in our lives that we're determined beyond anything else, beyond whatever our paycheck is, beyond whatever kind of house we live in, whatever kind of clothes we wear, that we know that we're in the will of God no matter what that means. The greatest inheritance you can leave for your children and grandchildren is a godly heritage to teach them what it means to know and do the will of God. Caleb taught his daughter this by example. Then I think, too, not only by the faith that he displayed, not only by the focus that he determined, but I think he gave her a good example through the foes that he defeated. We're told in chapter number 14, look down at verse 13. The Bible says, Joshua blessed him, gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh Hebron, for an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron before was Kerjath Arba, which means the land of four, which Arba was a great man among the Anakims, and the land had rest from war. Now look down in chapter 15. The Bible says in verse number 13 of chapter 15, And unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord, to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And Caleb drove thence the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. Forty-five years earlier, when he had spied out the land, he saw these three men. And God zeroed in. God put a heat-seeking target in Caleb's heart upon the backs of those three men. And Caleb determined that those were going to be the three foes he was going to have to defeat to take that mountain. It's interesting. Their names are very instructive because I think it represents to us three things that we in our lives need to conquer if we're going to lead by example in the lives of young people. Sheshai means noble, nobility. And it carries the idea of pride. A hymen literally means brother of a gift or something liberal, and it denotes the idea of prosperity. And then talmai means a ridge or a high place, and it reminds us of the idea of praise. And this isn't really much of my message, but let me just say that one of the greatest ways that we can lead and guide and inject godly influence into the lives of young people is to ourselves gain victory over the ideas of pride, prosperity, and the praise of men. In other words... If we can teach our young people to care about God's opinion more than man's opinion, if we can teach our young people that there's more important things than being first in the eyes of men, our children live in a perpetual state of bondage concerning the opinions of men. So much so that so many of them can't even function and live through life without uh, nerve disorders because they're, they're so terrified of upsetting and offending people. Listen, we'd do a lot to help our kids to free them of that bondage by reminding them that at the end of the day, hey, listen, ain't everybody going to like you. Ain't everybody going to love you. But as long as you're walking in the favor of God and pleasing Him, that's what really matters in life. And that is ever so important in this day of social media we live in, where people build little sandcastles of men's praise and approval. We need to teach our young people there's more important things in life than being first, being best in the, in the eyes of the world. We need to free our young people from the idea of prosperity. Uh, Brother Fred used the term this morning, and it's a good Bible term. He was joking when he used it, but it's a good Bible term, that term, filthy lucre. Uh, we, we have, in our desire to exhibit ambition and to better our children, I fear that we have caused them to, 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 to have a, an idolatrous love affair with filthy lucre. Several generations now have made it their determination in life 
to provide a better living for their kids than what they grew up with. And I would just propose this to you. I don't believe that poverty makes you godly. I don't believe prosperity makes you wicked. But I have found this to be the case that as uh, as, as things have grown uh, exponentially more comfortable in society, they've also grown exponentially more wicked. And I don't think that's an accident. I'm not saying the money is what does it, but I do believe the love of money is the root of all evil. And I believe we have engendered in our young people that this notion that money is freedom. By the way, you're seeing this start to, to, to rise to the surface in a lot of the socialist and communistic talk that's taking place nowadays where they equate money with freedom. How often do you see that? They, they, they just come out with that document, I'm not going to get sidetracked. I've been preaching on not getting sidetracked. But one of the things that it was talking about in, in, in the green dream or whatever it is that they came out with was, was that they wanted to provide economic freedom and liberty for everyone. That's dangerous language. Because it implies that freedom and liberty comes from economic prosperity. That's not true. Uh, freedom and liberty is an inalienable right given from God, our Creator. And there's a lot of people that got more money than they know what to do with, but they're not free. And they don't have liberty and they don't have freedom. But we, ha- we have created this society in which those two things are equivalent. And it's dangerous. We need to teach our kids that there's more things, there's things more important in life than making a paycheck. There are things more important in life than making a paycheck. I believe if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. I believe if a person won't take care of his family, he's worse than an infidel, he's denied the faith. But somewhere there has to be a line of moderation in which we can teach our kids it is their responsibility uh, to provide for those whom God has entrusted into their care. It is a noble thing. Hard work is a good thing. It is a noble thing. But by the same token, making an idol out of these things is just as destructive as it would be to neglect them. I I believe we need to... We've got to gain victory over the, the concept of prosperity in our life. We've got to get it in our head that there's more important things in life than having a big old fat paycheck. And once we settle that in our life and, and, and teach our kids that there's better things, deeper things, richer things, then how many zeros are in your bank account will have done them a great service. And then that thing of praise, well, I better move on. We see in this passage that he led by example. Let me give you a second thing this evening. Look in chapter 15 down at verse number 15. The Bible says, And he, speaking of Caleb, went up thence to the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir before was Kerjath Sefer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kerjath Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Exa, my daughter, to wife. And Othnael, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, to wife. Let me say that I believe by his example, Caleb injected godly influence into the life of his daughter. But number two, I believe he did so by his expectations. He says, I don't want just anybody marrying my daughter. I want somebody that has proved some things to me. I don't want my daughter dating just anybody. I don't want her marrying just anybody. I don't want her running around with just anybody. I don't want her hanging out with just anybody. I want to know that the people that are in her life are godly influence. I believe that Caleb had committed, his expectation was for Axa both to be and to marry A person of three things. Number one, a person of spiritual vigor. In other words, Caleb said, I want to know that my future son-in-law ain't lazy. I want to know that he's interested enough in her and interested enough in life that he'll go knock a city down if he has to, to win her. 
I want to know that He's somebody that's not just going to sit back and rest on His laurels and rest on His leads. He's somebody that's going to be a go-getter in life. One of the great disservices we've done to young people is we have, out of fear that we're going to disrupt and, and disturb their gentle psyche, we have ripped away any expectations away from young people. This is, in my opinion, one of the most damaging things we can do. It ain't no wonder our kids feel like failures. We don't expect anything out of them. If you don't give them a bar to reach, how are they ever going to enjoy and experience the sense of accomplishment and achievement of reaching the bar? We've got to give them a bar to reach. We've got to put expectations on their life. Now, I will agree, but this is one of the dangers. We have taken the exception and we've used it to destroy the rule. How many of you know that, there, that the, an exception to the rule, I said this in Sunday school, an exception to the rule proves two things. One, it proves there are exceptions. But two, it proves the rule. If there is an exception to the rule, it proves the rule. Because it wouldn't be an exception if there was not a rule in the first place. And yes, there have been instances, you see these, man, it's gross, you see them on TV, the, uh, the, the, you know, I can't remember what they call them, the parents that are just obsessed with their kids competing, the competitive parents. I don't know, you, you watch that garbage, you know what it is, I don't know what it is. But, but you, you probably see it, they might have them in beauty pageants, or they might have them in sports, or whatever it is, but you know, that, that's the guy at the little league game that's a little too intense, that's done forgot that it's not game six or whatever, and, and he's out there screaming at a coach that's volunteering his time uh, just because his kid didn't get to play third base or whatever it is. And, and, and the, the, these over-involved parents, and I think you ought to be involved in your kids' lives, but I agree, you can become so obsessed at their success that you create an, a, a problem in their psyche and that you cripple them. I understand that. But let me say, too, we've gone way too far in the other direction. We, to the place where we don't even tell kids who wins a t-ball game any, anymore because we're afraid it's going to damage them. Can't even keep score. We don't keep score and then we're shocked that they can't function in life. Life keeps score. I'm sorry, it does. I think we've lowered the expectations too much. Caleb had expectations on his daughter. He didn't want her being or, or being around just anybody. He wanted her to marry someone of spiritual vigor, someone that had determination and drive, someone that wanted to be better than what they were. And he wanted her to be that way. Want to encourage our children to be ever, ever growing in the Lord. And we ought to always encourage them to pursue relationships and friendships with people that if they're going to walk in fellowship with them, they're going to have to step it up to do so. They're going to have to step it up to do so. I want my kids to be the worst kids in any given crowd. You know why? That means everybody they're hanging out with is going to be a good influence on them. It's going to drive them to step up to do more. When I was a youth pastor, we used to... Uh, the church that I was youth pastoring used to do bus ministry, and we go out and pick these kids up and, and, and bring them to church. And one of the things that I always committed to do was not dumb down the truth of the Word of God to them, because they got that all the time. Every, every interaction they had with an adult had been dumbed down. And that's part of the reason there, there was such, uh, you know, sort of, of defiance and rebellion and, and chaos is because they were bored, and they needed to be challenged, and they needed somebody to tell them the truth. And so I always endeavored to preach just a little bit above their head. Not out of meanness, but to strive, to cause them to strive 
to understand, to learn more. God did great things in that little youth group and we saw them grow. What I'm getting at is this. We need to have higher expectations for our kids. Not so high that they can't be attained. And here's the real key. When they don't meet the expectation, we don't need to treat them like they're garbage. But we do need to have the expectations. She expected him to be and to be around and to marry a person of spiritual vigor. Number two, she wanted her, he wanted her to be and to marry a person of spiritual vision. It's interesting, and, and we'll get into what these names mean here in a second. But the Bible says that this place was called Debir. But that before it was called Kerjath Sefer. Now, why would God tell us that? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, I believe the names are indicative of a profound truth. But two, the point at which the name of this place changed was when Othniel conquered it. In other words, Caleb wanted to take somebody and see if they could look and not just see what that city was, but see what it could be. Someone that could observe a situation and look past the present condition and look beyond and see the possibilities of what God could do with somebody that was wholly consecrated unto Him. Listen, I want my children... I don't, I, don't, I don't just want them to have more than what I have. I want them to do more than what I've done. I want them to grow closer to God than I've grown. I don't just want to teach them to maintain a status quo. I want to teach them to be ever pressing forward. And I want my kids to dare to dream and do things that I would have never thought possible to be done for God. I want them to be people of spiritual vision. People that don't just get mired in the present, but look at the perspective and imagine what God could do if they'd follow with their whole hearts. That's how Caleb was. Caleb looked at that mountain. He said, hey, it ain't much now, but if I'll wholly follow God, it can be something. Hebron would go on to be a very, very important place in the Word of God, by the way, that would feature prominently in several other portions of Scripture. Before Caleb got there, it wasn't nothing but a land crawling with giants. Caleb looked at it and said, I believe it can be more. And he said, I want my daughter to marry a man that says, that can look at the same kind of hillside and say, I believe it can be more. If I'll follow God, if I'll serve God, I believe God can do more with it than what we even imagine. Again, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. Some people want to raise their kids to be out of touch with reality. Uh, some people want to raise their kids to uh, just constantly be down in the mouth about how miserable the world is. I believe there's a balance to those things. Listen, I believe we ought to be honest and realistic with our children. There's no question. But if we don't teach them how to dream big things for God, who's going to? If we don't teach them to look beyond the present situation and look to God's promises and what God can do, who's going to teach them that? Caleb expected his daughter to be, to be around and to marry a man of spiritual vigor. But then notice this. I believe that he expected his daughter to be, to be around and to marry a person of spiritual values. I told you I'd tell you what these names mean. It's very interesting. Before it was named Debir, it was Kerjath Sefer. That, that name literally means the land, listen to this brother Charlie, the land of the book. The land of the book. The name changed from Kerjath Sefer to Debir. And that means sanctuary. Caleb said, I want somebody that's got a desire for that hill, that place of the book, and that sanctuary. Now you can claim I'm twisting scripture if you want. But I believe there's a good application here that we ought to desire for our children to be, to be around, and to marry people that love the book and the sanctuary. 
Caleb wanted to know that Axel was going to marry somebody that loved the same things that he loved and that he had taught her to love. And he had taught her to love the Word of God. He said, how do you know that? Because for 45 years they've been talking about God's promise. And you say, well, preacher, how do you know that he taught her to love the sanctuary? Because for 45 years he had talked about one day being in the land of Canaan, one day being where God was going to set up a permanent home. For 45 years she had seen her daddy get up and go to the tabernacle and worship. And, and, and just like Joshua dwell in the presence of God in the sanctuary. And now Caleb says, listen, I want you to be around people and I want you to marry someone that has the same love for the book and the sanctuary that we have. I understand our kids need to be an influence to other kids. We also need to recognize the world's full of kids that need help. But your, own, your home only has one or two in there. Did you hear what I said? The world is full of kids that need help. But your home only has one or two there that need help. Prioritize the kids in your home before you prioritize the kids outside your home. They're the ones in your watch care. The world is full of kids that need help. I get it, man. The reason we do what we do around here is because the world's full. We're getting ready to start running that van, knocking on doors and picking kids up because the world is full of kids that need help. I get it. But you better recognize that the domain of your jurisdiction ends at your threshold. And you need to be, you need to be tending to those kids inside that house. Guarding them against the influences of the world. Teaching them to be people of the book and of the sanctuary. And encouraging them and expecting, expecting them. We, we, man, we're so worried about offending them. Expecting them to have godly relationships. Expecting them to go to church. Expecting them to read the Bible. Expecting them to pray. Expecting them to have spiritual insight. You say, well, preacher, what if they don't? Well, they probably won't if they're never expected to. You say, well, preacher, what do I do if they don't? Well, you lead them by example. You teach them. You take the time it takes to have the conversations with them that it takes time to have. You answer their questions. You encourage them. You pray with them. You put in the time. But we need to have these expectations upon them. Let me give you a final thing and I'm done. Not only by his expectations, but let me give you a third thing. He injected spiritual influence in the life of his daughter by his example and by his expectations. Number three, I believe he injected it in her life by his encouragement. Look at verse number 18 with me. The Bible says this, And it came to pass, as she came unto him, unto who? Unto Othniel, that she moved him to ask of her father a field. Now this is interesting, because as we talked about this morning, Canaan is a picture of spiritual vigor and victory in life. Now they're in Canaan. And she's been given a slice, a, a plot, a, a, a portion of this land. But she's not just satisfied with what she's got. She wants more. And so whenever she sees Othniel, presumably it's the first time she's seen it. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. It was her cousin. Uh, don't ask me to explain that. Amen. But <laughs> it was her cousin. And so she had seen him before. When, the first time she sees him after the battle, she sees him as her husband. She goes to him and she asks him, to ask her father for a field. Now, we might be tempted to look at this as being selfish, as feeling entitled, but I don't believe that's what it was. I believe she was wanting to ensure that her kids after her would have an inheritance in the land that was viable and valuable. She wanted more of the spiritual life that God was promising. She wanted more of the land that God wanted her in. And Caleb, when he sees her approach unto him, 
He knows she's getting ready to ask for something. And so Caleb said, What wouldest thou? And she answered, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. I want you to notice three things. Notice first off her role that she played in this. It's very interesting to me that she did not initially ask her father for this plot of land. She could have. She had, for all practical intents and purposes, she had been her, his daughter her whole life. She had been Othniel's wife for, I don't know, like ten minutes. You would imagine she would have felt boldness if she had wanted to. She no doubt had the favor of her father. It's apparent he doted on her because he gives these high standards for who's going to marry her. You would have thought she would have said, don't worry about it, Othniel, I will ask him for that field. But she doesn't. She asks Othniel to ask him. Why does she do that? Very simply, wasn't her place to ask. She was still her daddy's daughter. But she was now first and foremost her husband's wife. And now, though there was that relationship of intimacy between her and her father, now that has to be set aside and she takes her proper place and she is not presumptuous, even though it might have even been more effectual for her to ask, she still steps back, yields to Othniel's wishes, respects his place in the home and says, Honey, I need you to ask my father. Is this not an indication, listen, that she was trying to go about this thing the right way? The right way. One of the ways we lead our kids is by encouragement. Sometimes you have to look past what a kid's doing and look at what they're trying to do. Sometimes, let me say that again. Sometimes you have to look past what they're doing and look at what they're trying to do. We get so such tunnel vision as, as parents. I do. You may not, but I do. Man, there's times I'll walk in a room and I'll see what the, the mess on the floor and I don't see that my little boy has tried to build a little castle just for me to get my attention to show me how much he loves me. I just see a mess on the floor. And I want to come in and say, get down here and pick this up. What's this mess you've left? And it is a mess. But not to him it's not. To him it's a love letter to Daddy. Him, it's a way to show me that he wants my attention and he wants to know I'm interested in him. We need to sometimes look at what our kids are trying to say and what they're trying to do. And, and, and I understand we gotta have those high expectations. See, this is the other side of that coin. We gotta have those high expectations. But by the same token, we also have to give room for the fact that they're not there yet. If they were there yet, they wouldn't need you or me anymore. She was trying to go about this thing the right way. Way. Notice also her request. She says, give me a blessing. We joked about it earlier that uh, when a kid says, I want a blessing, what they really mean is money. But it's interesting to me that she equated the springs in the land with the blessing of God. What she wanted was she wanted to have more of what God had for her, and she wanted God to have more of what she had for Him. She wanted a deeper, more intimate relationship with the Lord. Sometimes, as our young people are growing up, there's times, if they were good at this thing called life, they wouldn't be kids anymore. If they were good at this thing called life, they'd be a lot farther on than a lot of adults I know. Sometimes they don't know. But we have to give them room. We have to give them room to develop and grow in the Lord, and they need our encouragement in that venture. I'm gonna, listen, I'm, I'm past time. I'm going to close with a simple thought here. Notice her reward. Caleb says, all right, I'll give those springs to you.
Let me put it very simply. When Caleb saw that she was making an attempt to try to do something of spiritual value, that she was going about it the right way, that she was desiring the right thing, he did everything within his power to honor and grant and bless that request. Why did he do that? Would she not have had access to those springs had he said no? Of course she would have. They belonged to her daddy. But he was trying to encourage her in this venture. Listen, we need to be encouraging our young people in their spiritual development. Encouraging our young people to take steps for God. We need to have their back when they do take steps for God. Uh, You and I both know sometimes, especially young Christians, they do things that are well-intentioned but misguided. A lot of times they substitute carelessness for faith. And sometimes they make a mess of things. I'd a lot rather my kids make a mess trying to do the right thing than dry up and die on the vine by doing nothing. We need to encourage them in the Lord doing the right thing. Man, encourage them to read their Bible. Encourage them to pray. Don't discourage them from taking steps of faith. Try to encourage anything they want to do for the Lord. As long as it's not ungodly or worldly in nature, encourage them in it. It takes time. This thing of parenting is a verb. It takes time. It takes attention. It takes energy. But what we're doing is investing in their life. Caleb raised a daughter just like him. I told somebody one day we were talking about kids. I was was talking to somebody that did not have kids and that did not like kids. And this person made the comment to me. They said, how do you deal with all them kids all the time? Acting like that. He's talking about my kids. And I said, how do you deal with kids' craziness and all this? I told him, I said, well, look, man, the reality is my kids are just as annoying to me as they are to anybody else. The difference is there's a bit of a sense of culpability because I help make them, right? And it's like, yeah, they're a mess, but they're kind of a mess the way I was a mess. (laughs) And they're a mess, but I really don't have anybody but myself to blame for them being a mess because they're just like me. I see it in my kid all the time. He won't stop talking. Some of y'all sitting there right now going, I wish he'd stop talking. Right now my wife is sitting at home on the couch listening to my little boy and thinking, man, I wish he'd stop talking. And sometimes I want to say, son, quit talking. But in all fairness, he's like that because of me. He's like that because of me. And on and on we could go. Hey, listen, the reality is they are what we make them. And that doesn't mean they don't have independent lives and decisions. They do. I'm not trying to saddle you with the decisions that they make. But I'm also trying to get in your head, especially those of us raising kids, how vitally important it is that we inject spiritual truth in these areas. you got grown kids. They may have told you you don't have any influence in their life, but they're lying to you. I am a grown kid. Mom and Daddy still have influence in my life. Even when I want to pretend they don't, I still hear and listen to what they say. You got grandkids? You think, man, they don't listen to a word that I say. They probably listen to you more than they listen to their own parents. What's the old saying that uh, par- that kids rebel against their parents and become their grandparents? It's a generational truism. It may be nephews, it may be nieces. But we all have people in our life that are looking at us and looking to us. Where do I start, preacher? Start with that first thing. Lead by example. Lead by example. That second thing, lead by expectations. 
Expect them to grow in the Lord. Expect them to do great things for God. Set the bar a little above them. They'll jump, they'll reach, and they'll fall sometimes. But sooner or later, they're going to grab hold of it. Put those expectations up there. Don't be a taskmaster with them, but put those expectations up there. And lead by encouragement. When you see them attempting to make steps towards God, don't come in and because it ain't just the way you do it or want it done, pour cold water on them. If you can guide them, if you can instruct them in the right way, by all means. But but listen, the I, I, one of the things I learned very early in pastoring, worship is a fragile thing. Worship is a fragile thing. When there's a spirit of worship, it don't take very much criticism to kill it. The same thing is true about ambition in our young people. It's a fragile thing, and it's especially true about spiritual ambition. It don't take much criticism to stomp out that spiritual ambition. It, it don't take much negative to stomp out that spiritual ambition. You see them taking steps for God? Encourage them in those steps for God. Encourage them. Listen, I got your back. I'm praying for you. I want to see you do well. I believe that you're growing. I see what the Lord's doing in your life. Encourage them in the Lord. Because sooner or later, they're going to be somebody, they're going to marry somebody. And who do we want them being? And who do we want them being around? And who do we want them allowing in their lives? We want them allowing someone in their lives, like Othniel, a person of spiritual vigor, vision, and values. And that's who we want our kids to be. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to the piano, the altar's open. I'm going to be asking the Lord to give me guidance and wisdom. I'm raising two boys. I need the Lord's help. I do. Some of y'all got grown kids. And you say, well, preacher, I wish maybe I'd done these things years ago. That's okay. You can start now. There may be some things you're not able to do like you could have done 20, 30 years ago, but you can still lead by example now. And still you can commit to pray for them now. And still you can encourage them in their steps in the Lord now. Maybe grandkids, maybe nieces, nephews. I think it'd do us all well to assume the mantle of responsibility that God has placed upon us as people leading young people.